I hope you'll forgive me for giving you an Advent message when it's not yet Advent, next week's Advent. Um, but we'll just get started. Advent, we'll get, we'll just get it going already, right? Um, and I do, it's right to talk about hope. Um, and in so doing, I had actually arranged or, or, or sort of developed this uh, really sort of clever introduction. I was going to talk about Albert Camus and the existentialists. And then I decided that's probably not worth our time. So I'm just going to set that aside. Um, just know that there's an introduction out there. It's just waiting to be used. So uh, in the meantime, we got to talk about hope. Because the word hope is, it's a bit of a Rorschach test. Uh, I probably didn't even pronounce that word right. But um, it, it is because I think that if you did a, a whirlwind tour of the, uh, of the worldviews, everyone would say certainly there is a hope. They may not agree on what that hope is or what the source of that hope is. But, but, but certainly the, the word hope sort of haunts our culture Right? We, we use it sometimes a bit frivolously, right? Someone asks me if I'm coming to the party, I say, I hope so, which really means actually I'm not. I'm a little bit too introverted. I'm not going to come. Um, but we use that word hope pretty frivolously. You know, we, we, we throw it around, but it's such a rich word. It deserves our attention. It, it's such a rich word. It, it deserves our attention and, and maybe a willingness and a vulnerability to, to sort of recalibrate our use of it as we make notes of the places where we might have uh, misplaced our hopes or, or our, our, our definitions of hope are still in need of growth and shape and, and well, calibration. Because this is actually at the, at the core of uh, why there might be tendencies around us to say there is no hope. Because we can certainly see bumpiness in the world around us. And there may be times where we might be tempted to say something like, there's no hope. But this is because of the human tendency to put our hopes in the wrong places. This is at the core of the human condition, our tendency to look for our satisfaction in other places than God. This is where we get all thrown about. This is where our loves get all out of order. This is, this is where, the, where the darkness can sometimes set in. So what we want to do in this first couple of weeks of this series, which actually includes the Christmas program itself, which you'll note is called Hope Revealed. And the first couple of weeks, we want to just answer some simple questions. The first one being, who should we hope in? And then Pastor Mike next week will talk about what should we hope for? And obviously, there's going to be lots of overlap, and we're probably going to have to define hope while we're doing it. But that's really the basic shape of the next two weeks is to calibrate our hopes, to, to, to excavate the richness of the word so that we're no longer wielding it frivolously and so that we're no longer misplacing our hopes. We're going to talk about who should we place our hope in so that we don't fall prey to the human tendency to place our hopes or look for our satisfaction in places other than God. I think the answer probably is a little bit obvious because you walked into a church building this, this morning, but perhaps it's also still worth our while to say, when we answer the question, who should we place our hope in, it's in God. But, but specifically, maybe we should ask the ancient Hebrew prophets, when they place their hope in God, what do they mean? And many, many times what they actually mean, what they, what they specifically mean is that they're placing their hopes in God's character. 
This is something not necessarily available to all belief sets in the ancient world. Would one say that they were placing their hopes in Zeus? This capricious lightning thrower? Certainly not. But when you think of the character of the God of Israel, you can indeed say, as my son often says when he prays, thank God for God. I thank God for God. I thank God for who he is, for his character. In fact, God, when he reveals his character in Exodus chapter 34, says this, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And this particular statement about God is echoed all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And when we read it, we can say, I thank God for God. Do you know when this passage was actually, uh, when it falls in the narrative? It actually comes right after they had failed the Ten Commandments by making the golden calf. So, so, so the tablets had been smashed and, and, the, and the calf has been made and, and, and the covenant's already broken. And here God says, I'm gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And this is the sort of thing that the Hebrew prophets and, and, and the authors of the Old Testament would do. They would look back at when the character of God had been brought to their attention most forcefully. There's something about hope that actually requires a looking backwards. The, 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 the rabbis talked about this quite often, that actually the human being faces backwards, faces back in time. There's even a tradition that says when, when uh, God allowed Moses to see his back, what he was doing is actually allowing Moses to see what was to come. Because we're oriented towards the past so we can see again and again who God is and what he has done. This is where we put our hopes in God's past faithfulness. In God's past faithfulness, we find that there is a future hope. Now, this hope often comes to the surface in the scriptures at odd times, at times where it seems like maybe there is no hope, in the middle of a desert maybe, or perhaps in the presence of one's enemies, or in exile when the temple has been torn down brick for brick. The surface is broken by the, by the seed of hope coming to, 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 to bloom you see, hope is not optimism, right? What optimism does is optimism looks at the present and says, I see signs that things might work out. Optimism says, I see reasons for being, you know, confident that things are going to be okay. But that's not what hope does. Because hope can look around and see how things actually are and say, but in the midst of it, I know, I know that there is this God whose character will win the day, whose character will light up the darkness, whose character will bring order to the chaos, who, who, whose character will bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted, who, whose character will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. They looked at God's character and they said, I don't care how dark it gets, I know what comes well, maybe not next, but I know what comes in the end. This, this hope is not an optimism. It, it, it's, it's a belief that there are signs of early spring. 
and that this early spring is in, in line with the character of God and will one day bloom fully. There, the, the case I want to show you here, actually, just for a second, is uh, where things might have seemed dark, darkest. The book of Jeremiah is a book about exile, a book about the people of Israel failing time and again to, to, to really fulfill the covenant. And actually, literally in the center of the book, this is how sophisticated the Hebrew prophets were. This is literally in the center of the book. If you counted words left and counted words right and found the center of the book of Jeremiah, you would find this poem. It says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them, out of the hand, took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Remember how they're still looking back. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with my people, with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Mind you, this is in the middle of the darkest night Israel had known. Dark like being enslaved in, in Egypt. Dark by being sort of in between times, between Egypt and the promised land, dark because of the exile. So dark that Jeremiah himself, who wants to tell us about hope, is actually having his life threatened. And he says, in the middle of this, I know there will be a light where things will be made new. Even in the midst of our troubles, there's a table being prepared. So what can we say about hope? Maybe we could define it this way. That hope is a faithful waiting with our hearts and minds alert and aligned with what God is doing in our world. Notice what Jeremiah said, that this would be a time when God made us new, our minds and our hearts renewed. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 12, and he says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Here we see that hope is a faithful waiting, a waiting with our hearts and minds alert and aligned with what God is doing in our world. It's a participation in the coming of spring. In fact, the, the two words in the Hebrew Bible that are used for hope, kavad and, 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 and kaval, are, are both at their core about waiting. Waiting with anticipation. Waiting with a confidence a faithful waiting. Now, I don't mean faithful waiting in terms of just sort of sitting back and seeing what happens next and just waiting. This faithful waiting means that we are participating in the coming of spring. You see, people all around the globe look and they see beauty, don't they? They go to the mountains, they go to the beaches, they, they see the cathedrals. They, they notice beauty. But the question is, is this the beauty kind of like a late autumn that indicates things are slipping into winter? Or is this beauty that's more like the early signs of spring that will eventually bloom into full-on summer? And it's the second for us, that it's a coming of spring that we get to participate in. So this hope is a faithful waiting, meaning we live faithfully. Paul calls for it at both the beginning and the end of Romans. He calls for the faithfulness of, of, 
of living. Obedience of faith is the phrase he uses. Obedience of faith. Obeying. Being in the covenant with the God of love, the God of hope, this, this, this God whose character can be trusted. But we might, like the ancient Israelites and the ancient Hebrews, very much ask when. When? If I know who I can hope in, and maybe even a bit more about what hope is, when, Lord? Isn't that really what the Psalms are? When, O oh Lord? When? You, you, you see them asking when over and over again because they knew the promises. Promises like this one. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, when your days are over, this is actually uh, a promise made to David. When your days are overed, over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise you up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And so from that promise on, the people of Israel kept asking when. Every new king was a fresh asking of that question, when. And every once in a while, there was a king where I thought, eh, this guy, he's got it together. Hezekiah, he found the scroll. Josiah found the scroll. Maybe it's this one. But one after another, they fail the hopes of Israel. In fact, this promise is made to David, and it's really just a chapter later that he and Bathsheba are uh, in their episode, right? It's, it's, it's one failure after the next. Actually, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. The, 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 the history books, the history books in the Old Testament are a prophetic retelling of the history of Israel and over and over again saying, look where we can't place our hopes. It can't be Hezekiah. He can't do it. It, it. it can't even be Nehemiah. He's the one who built the wall back. It can't be him. And it can't be Ezra. It can't be. It's a prophetic retelling. Their hopes are not in them. No, not in them. In the one who will do it. Paul says as much in 1 Thessalonians. He says, our God is able and he will do it. It can't be in man where we place our hopes. And that, of course, is said again and again. Isaiah knew as much. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. It says a very famous phrase. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Out of the ground will burst forth new life, new creation. But isn't it a little bit strange? The promise was made to David. We were told that it would be one of David's descendants sitting on the throne. But that's not who Isaiah talks about. Who's Jesse? I think you know. It's David's dad. Why does he say this, this shoot will come from the stump of Jesse? He's saying we're going to have a new David altogether. Not just a descendant of David, but a new David Listen to Isaiah, how Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah chapter 9. In the middle of the darkness, Isaiah says, I'm telling you, there's one coming, a child who will be born, who will fulfill our hopes. And listen how he talks about him. He says, nevertheless, there will be no more 
gloom for those who are in distress. Remember, he sees how things are. He sees the distress. He sees the darkness. But to him, it's the coming dawn and not the dusk. He, he can look at the present and still see that there is a light coming. It says, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. Your antenna just went up, didn't it? Galilee. In the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is the Advent season. Even though it's dark sometimes, we trust the character of God to bring light. And we, who will bring this light? It gets to it at the end of the passage, at the end of the poem. It says, for unto us a child is born. Are you starting to sing in your heart a little bit? To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. By the way, Counselor in this case isn't just really a sense of comfort. It's Counselor as in like uh, he gives good counsel to the king. Like uh, he's very wise. But what's next? He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God? The new David who's coming will be God himself among us? This son will also be everlasting father? Who could ever bear the weight of all of this to be the prince of peace, the greatness of his government and peace? There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne, like 2 Samuel chapter 7, and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Who could ever bear the weight of all of our hopes and fears? We sometimes sing songs like the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Who is thee? Who's the one who can truly stand up to the, to the weight of all this beauty? Who could bear it on his shoulders? Who could relieve us from the yoke of slavery as it talks about in chapter 11 of Isaiah? Who can do it? Who can ascend that hill as it says elsewhere in scripture? Well, Matthew, the apostle Matthew, Maybe your friend Matthew too. But the apostle Matthew believes it to be Jesus. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. We probably won't read the whole thing, but you'll get a real sense that Matthew is a convinced friend of Jesus. Here's what he says. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison in the dark, quite literally the dark, he withdrew to Galilee Tenant goes up. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Isaiah 9. Everyone who had been steeped in the scriptures knew what they were hearing. Just like they knew what they were hearing when Jesus opened the scroll of Isaiah and said, in your presence, these scriptures have been fulfilled. He's the one. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, Matthew sometimes doesn't trust us to get it, so he says that, right? Just so you get it. 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the li people living in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's him who will reign on the throne. He's the wonderful counselor, both mighty God and Son, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government, there will be no end. This kingdom of heaven is where everything is as it should be. In the scriptures, it's, it's God's space. But, but here's the way that we sometimes miss it. We sometimes think we leave this world in order to get to heaven. But over and over again, the authors of the New Testament want us to understand that heaven and earth are overlapping and the kingdom of heaven has come near in Jesus is overlapping. It's distinct, but it's overlapping. Doesn't this make much more sense of the signs of spring that we can still see while it still might be a bit dark outside? Yes, it is sometimes darkest before the dawn. Maybe it's always darkest before the dawn. But you understand my meaning. It's not late autumn around here with signs of beauty slipping into a deep winter. Instead, it's early spring. The, the kingdom of heaven has come near in and through Jesus. It's an overlapping reality. It's God's space and it's brought to bear by Jesus and then by Jesus' people. And what we find in Jesus who brings the kingdom of heaven near is that the kingdom of heaven being near is everything we ever wanted. The presence. Over and over again, the hope really is that God will dwell with his people. There's a reason John starts with this magisterial poem where he says, Jesus tabernacled with us. There's a reason why John in Revelation ends with this incredible, beautiful vision of Jerusalem descending, heaven and earth overlapping more and more fully, and God announcing that he will be with us. Ever since Cain, it's what our hearts have wanted most. Do you remember Cain, whose sin was crouching at his door? And God said to Cain, you need to be careful. You need to master that sin. But he found he could not. And he murdered his brother. And the natural result of that was separation. God says to Cain, you're going to have to go further east. And do you remember what Cain said? He said, my punishment is more than I can bear. My punishment. Separation. So in that separation, we might put our hopes in all various things. In temporary escapes. In, in financial upswings, in a particular presidential candidate. We, we might be tempted in that separation, in that gap, to put our hopes in the wrong thing. That's the human tendency, to look for our satisfaction somewhere other than God. But we find that what we had been looking for all along was just, just the presence of God. In which, in which all things are made new. And I want to stay in my lane. I, I don't want to start to talk too much about what we're hoping for, as Pastor Mike next week. But in Jesus, 
is the one we can hope. He's the one who brought heaven near. And so we wait faithfully, living faithfully with the obedience of faith. Right alongside Jesus, our hearts and minds attuned because he's made us alive in him. We're not the only ones who have ever waited for Jesus. I think of Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2. And Simeon is this prophet. He was a righteous and devout prophet, we see in Luke chapter 2. He had been waiting for the consolation of Israel is what it says. And so he went to the temple. And there he saw the child Jesus, a child who had been born, a son who had been given. Just as the, the law required, Mary and Joseph had brought Jesus to the temple. And Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. The hopes and fears of all the years are met here, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. We see yet another contour of hope here. Here's what hope can be. Hope is believing that God will fulfill his promises because he always has. Remember, we're oriented backwards. We see the past. We see the exodus. We see the return from exile. We see the resurrection. Something even Simeon didn't get to see. We see the resurrection you might say, yeah, easy enough for Matthew. Matthew was there. You might say, yeah, easy enough for Simeon and Anna. They were there. But I'm telling you, the way I know that our hopes can be placed in Jesus and him alone is the same way they knew it. The resurrection. And if you'll recall, Ephesians chapter 1, the same spirit that rose him from the dead is living in us. It's this resurrection. We know it the same way they knew it, the same way Paul knew it when he said, listen, all of our hopes hinge here. As he said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 17 through 20. He said, listen, if the dead aren't raised, then Christ isn't raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our faith is futile and we're still stuck. Even those who have fallen asleep are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all of all people to be most pitied if there is no resurrection. And then he says, but indeed, Christ has been raised. But indeed, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now at this point, all of my instincts are telling me to make a very sophisticated historical argument for why you can trust that the resurrection is fact. And that would be very fun but we're not going to do it because it takes like an hour and a half. So let's get coffee, and we'll do that. But what if we leaned in a slightly different direction? What if we leaned in the direction of the disciples on the road to Emmaus? And they said, how can we know this one is raised? And they said, were not our hearts burning within us? Doesn't the Spirit of God testify to us that it's true? Isn't the same spirit that raised him from the dead alive and active in us? And as Paul uses that plural word, you, in our community, haven't we seen the first signs of spring? 
Don't we know that we can be people of hope because he has renewed our minds and our hearts? Yes, we get to join in with these first signs of spring. All across the New Testament, Paul and others argue that what God has done in Jesus, he will do for us. Also be raised that we would experience the fullness of the overlapping of heaven and earth, that our hopes truly calibrated in him would come to life. This is something that burns in my heart. These signs of beauty, these signs of spring. But if it's obscured to the world, it's our fault. If the world can't say the same sentence, we're not our hearts burning within us, it's our fault. <laughs> because I know the character of God and I know it's not his fault. I've heard a theologian put it this way, that Jesus is God's gift to the church and the church is Jesus' gift to the world. But if the world looks at it and can't see it as a gift... Maybe we have forgotten ourselves. Maybe we're not the people of hope we were called to be. Maybe we are falling prey to the human tendency to put our hopes elsewhere in a new presidential candidate or a more robust bank account or a bigger house on a higher hill with a stronger gate. I don't know. But maybe we're falling prey to those things and people can't see the signs of spring that are all around us. Pascal was right when he said, people won't care whether Christianity is true until they want it to be true. This is our privilege as people of hope to live in such a way that people will want it to be true, where their hearts will burn within them. But he is the one who's doing it. He is the one who's renewing us. It says at the end of even the passages that we just read that our God will do it. He will make us new. Like Ephesians 3 says, he's making us into the temple. What is the temple if not where the presence of God is? And what is not more be what's more beautiful than the fact that now the temple is pushing outwards, the, the gospel's edge around the globe so that the presence of God is filling the earth as it always should have. We can look at Ephesians 3 and remind ourselves that he is building us into this people. Or we could look at Romans 8, a very famous phrase from Romans 8 that we love to quote. We love to talk about how God brings all things together for those who love him. And that's true, but that's not actually what it says in the Greek. In the Greek, it says, God brings all things together for good with those who love him. That the spring that we see all around us actually gets to happen in our hearts too and we get to participate. We get the privilege of participate in, in forcefully bringing the kingdom of heaven to bear. I am not saying that he's not going to work all things for good. That's actually what the promises are and Pastor Mike will get into that next week. But I am saying it's even more beautiful than that that we get to participate in it. Have you ever tried to bake around a child? <laughs> what do they want so bad? 
They want to help. Have you ever tried to rake leaves around a child? They want to help. Have you ever see, served a J-Jira with a child? What do they want to do? Let me carry that dad. I'm telling you, just like Erica told you earlier, the signs of spring in our own hearts is a privilege to get to experience when we work with the God of all hope. So I bless you this morning the way that Paul blessed the church in Rome church in Rome, which was among the first signs of spring in a very, very dark place, when he said to that church, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. so that the world will know it's not beauty like a late autumn. It's beauty more like a very early spring where we have reason to hope, not just an internal disposition, but reason to hope because we have seen God's past faithfulness. We know we have a future hope. Now, I realize that this season is sometimes difficult. I don't experience it that way. I experience it as wonderful. But that's a privilege. I know for some it's difficult. And that's why we get to do this together. To, to bear one another's burdens. To, to go on meeting together, as Paul calls for and sometimes that means really specific things and really specific conversations. Like, for instance, uh, after the Christmas program, we're going to be doing uh, soul healing groups. And we'll be meeting here on Monday evenings for, for men and Wednesday evenings for women. And we'll just get a chance to work through and again remind ourselves that we are people of hope. Even in the midst of challenge, even in the midst of pain, we serve the God of hope. The God of all hope, as Paul says in Romans. And perhaps what we will say to each other most forcefully in those soul healing groups or in these evenings coming forward with a Christmas program or at Bloom or when we meet on Sunday mornings, perhaps what we'll say most forcefully to each other is that in Jesus we have hope. And maybe we'll say to each other, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him He's the one we're hoping in so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, let's, uh, let's have that be true. We, we cry out like Paul in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, Maranatha. Lord, come. Lord, Lord, we pray for your presence. We pray for it to spill out so that we could be a gift to the world so that the first signs of spring would come to full bloom and full-on summer. We are thankful for the faithful witnesses of your followers from Samuel through Isaiah to Matthew and Paul, all pointing us to the place where we can put our hopes, where all of our hopes and fears are met. Lord, uh, 
we confess that we sometimes take our hopes and place them in the wrong, wrong places. Put our hopes in the wrong things. But we know you are a gracious God. You told Moses that. You tell us that. You are a gracious God, slow to anger, forgiving. So we thank you for your character and for how it gives us hope. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.